0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly? Yeah. Do you like oysters? I love oysters. Yeah. Uh, I won't do raw oysters. I mean, I have. It's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but almost any other iteration of oysters I will eat. That involves cooking? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oyster stew is a big favorite. Fried oysters. Mm. Oyster po' boys that you used to be able to get at a restaurant here. Delicious. Yeah. So nowadays, We, thanks to, you know, their scarcity and also the pearl making, uh, oysters are are associated pretty well with luxury, or at least with being a sometimes food. They're they're not, for most people, something that you eat every day. Uh, And that pearl association is a little off because most pearls are cultured now, but still having a flash to the um, Japan Pavilion at Epcot. You know that big department store they have in the bottom? Mm -hmm. They have like a little oyster tank where you can pick your oyster and pop it open and maybe there's a pearl inside. And it's a big excitement when people find a pearl, they'd like clap and ring a bell. (laughs) 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 That is super fun. So like with many scarcities, this one is completely man-made. Uh, before the 1800s, oysters were plentiful in North America. But in the years after the Industrial Revolution and the Civil War, the oyster supply became so scarce that people actually turned to oyster piracy. The bloodshed peaked in the late 1800s, but the strife that we're talking about went on for almost 100 years. So what we're talking about today, the Chesapeake Bay Oyster War. Uh And I think a couple of listeners have requested this one, and I I tried to go back looking through the spreadsheet to find names, and and I did not record the names, so I am sorry. The spreadsheet became unusable in in its (laughs) scope and length. (laughs) It reached epic proportions, uh not easily wrangled by man. Yes. Uh, So people, as we know, have been eating oysters pretty much for all of human history. There's archaeological evidence of oyster eating that goes all the way back to the Neanderthals. And pretty much every place there were oysters, there were people eating them. In colonial America, they really became a staple. And they weren't used just for food. Their shells were also important and used in everything from plaster to animal feed. When European settlers arrived in North America, oysters were, as we've been suggesting, quite abundant. Oyster beds were really expansive, so much so that unsuspecting ships could easily run aground on them. And you may also recall from our episode on Jamestown's starving time that at one point, uh, John Smith actually tried to reduce the fort's food demands by sending people away to live on oysters because they were plentiful, full of protein, Eaten everywhere. Yeah, pretty easily acquired too. Yeah. These oysters were also a whole lot bigger than they are today. A market size oyster today is at least three inches long, but foot long oysters were a common sight back then. Oysters are a lot like lobsters in this way. Early settlers told stories of giant and plentiful lobsters, but once people started eating a lot of them, they didn't have the chance to grow that big anymore. And if you're interested in the lobsters side of the story, you can hear it in the Memory Palace episode, The Lost Lobsters. And for a while after the arrival of the European settlers, the oyster population in North America was just fine. It was easily keeping up with the demands of consumption. And even with the influx of people, there, there still weren't enough people here consuming oysters to put a dent in what was at that time a very robust oyster population. Then came the Industrial Revolution. And sometimes I think we should call this podcast, Thanks, Industrial Revolution. <laughs> it, uh, it was indeed quite impactful <laughs> in a variety of ways. Some good and some really not. Yeah. Uh, with advances in harvesting, food preservation, and transportation, all of that changed. Once people could harvest giant masses of oysters and then can big batches of them in factories and ship them everywhere by railroad, over-harvesting immediately became a problem. The dredge was introduced in the late 1700s in New England. And this was actually a big toothy jaw that would scrape up uh, huge numbers of oysters all at the same time. So in one fell swoop. And on top of steeply reducing how much time it took to harvest all those oysters, the dredges, unfortunately, were scooping up so many that they didn't leave behind enough oysters to repopulate those beds. Yeah, and they would throw back the ones that were too small for the most part. Sometimes not, (laughs) when they were desperate for oysters. But even so, it wasn't enough to really uh, restock the area. And the effect on the New England oyster population was almost immediate. By the 1800s, oyster populations in New York, Rhode Island, and Connecticut had pretty much collapsed, but demand had not gotten any smaller. So people turned south to find more oysters. And in Virginia and Maryland, in the Chesapeake Bay, its name actually comes from an Algonquin word, meaning Great Shellfish Bay. Oysters were still really abundant. But Virginia, which had claimed to the southern half of the bay, and Maryland, which had the northern part uh, and the Potomac River leading off of it, were not super keen on the Yankee interlopers coming along to eat up all of their oysters. And so each of those municipalities uh, passed laws allowing oyster harvesting only by state residents. This sounds like a good idea. On paper. On paper. Yeah. It led to some problems. By the mid-1800s, people had figured out how to steam can oysters. And railroads were also starting to connect coastal towns to bigger cities, making it so much easier and faster to transport the oysters once they were canned. And all of these factors, combined with the influx of labor and investment after the Civil War to make the Chesapeake Bay a prime opportunity for a new industry, uh It was basically a giant oyster rush. Like people were just swooping right in there to get in on the oyster action. Crisfield, Maryland, on the eastern shore of the bay, became a nexus of oyster activity. Railroads led out of town. It was actually named for John Crisfield, who was the president of the Eastern Shore Railroad. And it had easy access to some of Maryland's richest oyster beds. They, these were in the Tangier Sound and could only be reached by dredge. By 1872, about 600 oyster vessels were sailing out of Crisfield. And meanwhile, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, became the capital of oyster canning, with more than 100 processing houses. And these canneries were largely the work of New England investors. The city was at a prime location because it was connected to Crisfield by the Eastern Shore Railroad, and it was connected to the rest of the world uh, by the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. So it was really like the perfect geographical location. Oyster harvesting was also really lucrative work. In the 1860s, the captain of an oyster dredging ship might make $2,000 a year, which does not sound like much. But the average Maryland income was only $500 a year. And, of course, there's a reason it was so lucrative, and that's because it was also extremely dangerous. Uh, the legal oyster season, you know, the months with an R, uh, was during cold, wet weather. And oystermen had to be strong and really hardy. So being constantly exposed to the elements would bring on all kinds of ailments. So you really did have to be in great health and really strong of body. Uh, watermen were prone to frostbite. They could get broken bones and what's called oyster hand, which is an infection uh, that you get if you are cut by an oyster shell. And it was especially hazardous for inexperienced workers, as you can imagine. Uh, being swept off to sea by the water or knocked off the deck by a swinging boom on a dredging ship happened pretty commonly. And uh, as a consequence, they also would sometimes accidentally uh, fish up the bodies of Men who had fallen in previously. So also kind of a gruesome activity and a job not for people faint of heart or weak of stomach. Towns along the waterfront became a lot like gold rush towns in the Old West, except on water and for oysters. They were full of brawling saloons, brothels, and a generally seedy element, much to the chagrin of the also thriving Methodist community there. you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's uh, not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's Day David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuffy Mist and history class, or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. <laughs> The situation was bad enough in Crisfield that it actually went dry in 1875, but speakeasies continued to thrive and they had to arrest so many illegally drunk people that they needed to build an extra jail. <laughs> and there continued to be a huge demand for oysters, so much so that there were not always enough qualified laborers to man the boats. So captains would actually sometimes kidnap men from these gold rush style towns and actually force them to work on the boats. Immigrants who didn't speak English were particularly high risk for being abducted, and they were effectively imprisoned on these dredging ships. There are horrible stories of beatings, torture, and killings, and those stories became pretty common during this time. In the middle of all this lawlessness, by the mid-1880s, people were hauling millions of bushels of oysters out of the Chesapeake Bay annually. 15 million bushels in 1884 alone. The Chesapeake Bay was supplying about half of the world's oysters. But of course, just as claim jumping plagued the West during the gold rush, tensions ran high among multiple factions during this oyster boom. And since we've already described it as kind of a lawless and wild space, you can imagine what starts to happen. Yes, there were two main methods of harvesting oysters. In shallow water, people would lean over the side of the boat and collect oysters from the bed using these long tongs. So they scraped up small loads of oysters at a time. And then in deep water, ships would use the dredges that we talked about earlier. So obviously the tongers couldn't go into deeper water, but the dredging ships could work their way into the shallows. So the tongers were constantly trying to fight off the dredgers. The Tongers petitioned the government for protection, but they really didn't get a lot of response. Uh, As continues to be the case, uh, some people felt like it was the people with the most money and the biggest ships that were getting the most attention. So the Tongers armed themselves. And it wasn't just the people who were out on the water. Coastal towns had to arm themselves, too. By 1871, Tongers were regularly firing on dredgers that worked into their territory. And on top of that, Virginia and Maryland could not agree where the state line was, nor could they patrol it adequately. So when it came to the areas closest to the state line, the Maryland and Virginia oystermen were also fighting. They were at each other's throats. And sometimes there were even disputes between oyster harvesters from neighboring counties. So it was kind of a free-for-all of people with various issues all going at it in the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah. With all the fights between the Tongers and the Dredgers, and between Maryland and Virginia Harvesters, things got bloody fast. People who were in one way or another on the wrong side of oyster law became known in the news and to the rest of the population as oyster pirates. Apart from all of this violence, uh all this aggressive harvesting was really damaging the oyster population. So by the mid-1860s, just about every jurisdiction had put some laws into place to try to protect the oysters from being harvested to extinction. So uh regulations like what sizes of oysters could be harvested and when. And there were also taxes imposed on the oyster harvests. But the enforcement was not really... uh There, It was pretty lax. Nobody was really willing to take up the political risk of dampening the oyster trade, which was so um, lucrative. And with such a vast network of waterways to monitor, there really wasn't anybody with resources to do it anyway. So they passed laws, but they were really just on the books and not so much in practice. Yeah. Maryland formed an oyster police force in 1868. It was commanded by a man named Hunter Davidson, and he patrolled in a steamboat named Layla, which was a decrepit tug from the Civil War. But he only stayed with it for a handful of years. Uh, The Oyster Pirates outnumbered him and had much better, nimbler, faster ships. He would actually use a howitzer to try to sink illegal vessels, and that did sometimes work. Uh, And he set armed blockades at the mouths of some of the most highly contested waterways. Neither of these was a popular move, to the surprise of no one. (laughs) Uh, At least once, somebody tried to assassinate him. Oyster pirates boarded the Layla in the middle of the night on January 28, 1871, where he was asleep in a locked cabin. When the pirates started struggling with the door, it woke him up and gave him time to grab a revolver and defend himself. So the assassination attempt was not successful. But he did not stay on the job too much longer after that. (laughs) The Maryland government added more ships and staff in 1870 following a number of rather unflattering articles about how many bodies had been washing up on the shore. So it actually did become a slightly more effective force in 1871. The dredgers actually began to claim that law enforcement was targeting them unfairly for minor or even non-existent infractions. And Virginia kind of lagged behind this enforcement effort. A financially strapped state government had sold the three vessels it used for maritime police work in 1875, which left it no real way to enforce any of the laws for several years. By the late 1870s, things were really becoming dire. In 1878, Francis Winslow, who was a former Navy officer, actually conducted a survey of the Bay's oysters and documented uh, that harvesting was vastly outpacing the oysters' ability to reproduce. And at this point, both states started to get much more serious about trying to conserve and to stop the piracy. Like once they realized this business was going to completely dry up if they didn't get on it. Yeah. suddenly, everybody was a little more motivated. Between 1882 and 1885, William Evelyn Cameron, who was the actual governor of Virginia, personally led a series of anti-pirate attacks up the Chesapeake through Maryland to the mouth of the Rappahannock River. He had a military background and had been a captain in the Confederate militia. And he had taken a serious wound at the Battle of Second Manassas, also known as Second Bull Run. He led a small flotilla of heavily armed ships under the cover of night in an attempt to stop the piracy. In his first raid in 1882, he had his fleet sail in a formation so that it would look like a tug was pulling a disabled freighter. So they kind of arranged themselves in a disguise, which is really fun to think about. Uh, he managed to capture several illicit dredgers this way, and their captains and crew stood trial and had their boats and gear confiscated. The governor did, however, eventually pardon them. This is really a best-of-both-worlds situ- situation for Governor Cameron. He had shown himself to be brave and daring and getting something done, um, but then he didn't actually Punished them too harshly, uh, and they had the sympathy of a lot of voters. So he kind of satisfied all of the people at that point. He yeah, got a, he got a boost in popularity off he of it. Had his cake and ate it too. He I did. Think. That's pretty smart. It only happened once. <laughs> <laughs> you can't keep pulling those because no. then people start calling you wishy-washy. Uh, the boost of his popularity, of course, quickly faded, and the Dredgers went right back to dredging. The raids he led after that point weren't nearly as successful, and they actually became the target of ridicule. There was even a comic opera at the Norfolk Academy of Music that was performed about the whole thing on April 3rd of 1883 called Driven from the Seas or Pirate Dredgers Doom. Although Governor Cameron's administration became kind of a shambles, in March of 1884, Virginia enacted a bill that established a board on the Chesapeake and its tributaries, which created and funded an actual naval force to protect Virginia's oyster interests. Virginia had steamers patrolling the bay by December of that year. And in its first year of service, the aquatic police force created by the board had actually apprehended 61 illicit oyster vessels. And with that enforcement in place, the state's tax revenue from oysters magically started to climb again. Law enforcement also became a much bigger focus following the murder of Otto Mayer. He was a German immigrant and he was killed in 1884. He had been beaten daily and tortured aboard the dredging ship Eva. Two of his German shipmates reported what had happened to the German consulate in Baltimore once they returned to shore. And at this point, since it was basically an international incident, uh, the effort to get things under control really started in earnest. But unfortunately, those efforts were hampered by the ongoing tensions between Virginia and Maryland. And by the spring of 1894, the two states' governments had completely stopped trying to negotiate with each other. They just gave up. On top of that, in spite of the fledgling conservation efforts, the oyster population really started to bottom out by the 1890s. There were so many oystermen on the water that they couldn't break even on the hauls they were bringing in. So they started taking oysters that were under three inches long, and those are the ones that normally would have been thrown back to repopulate. Oyster packing houses also started to fail. Since oysters are, of course, filter feeders, water quality in the bay plummeted as well. And this was a downward spiral since the dirty water was also harder for oysters to live in. A lot of things changed after the turn of the century. In 1906, the introduction of gasoline-powered dredging equipment made dredging possible with less manpower. So that cut out the need to force people into labor while also, of course, putting some people who chose to do work out of work. By the 1920s, the annual oyster yield had dropped from that impressive number of 15 million bushels from the 1880s to a mere 3 million annually. So that's a very significant drop off. And in spite of there being so much less oyster, you know, boon to, to, to haul to in, over. <laughs> tensions continued on and off for the next 30 years. In 1942, a new oyster bed was discovered on Swam Point up the Potomac River from the Bay in Maryland. And law enforcement had real trouble keeping poachers away from that area because a lot of Maryland's boats at that point were engaged in World War II. Poachers from Virginia that were known as the Mosquito Fleet would cross the state line to plunder oysters and then run from the police in high-speed boats. The last bloodshed in the Oyster Wars was in 1959 when a Virginia man named Berkeley Muse was shot by police after harvesting oysters from the Potomac in Maryland. He died from his injuries. Um, uh, at that point, there was, uh, there were a lot of people who just called this out as absurd. The, the, the refrain was kind of, it is 1959, we should not be killing people over oysters. Yeah. Virginia and Maryland were at this point already uh, trying to work out their oyster differences. And so Muse's death, uh, as Tracy said, kind of put that into high gear. They started negotiating in earnest again. And eventually, a six-member bi-state commission actually worked out an agreement, uh, which is called the Potomac River Fisheries Bill. And that agreement made it to the ballot. It passed the popular vote. And it was eventually sent to Washington for congressional ratification. John F. Kennedy signed it into law on December 5th, 1962, at which point then governors Taws of Maryland and Harrison of Virginia met and had a seafood lunch with oysters to celebrate. But unfortunately, the oyster population in the Bay has continued to fall, uh, especially following new diseases appearing there in the 1950s and 1960s. And it uh, really bottomed out in the 1980s. Today's harvests of native oysters are less than 1% of what they were at their 1880s peak. However, the 2012 Fall Oyster Survey reported a 93% survival rate among the state's oyster population, the highest it has been since 1983. So things are maybe starting to look up a little for native oysters in the Chesapeake Bay. And also no one is killing people over them anymore. It kind of makes me want to not eat oysters for a little while. Like, I'm doing my part. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, and the oysters. So many, so many seafoods that I love to eat so much are uh, are in some way or other a conservation problem. I think it's yeah. the Monterey Bay Aquarium has that Seafood Watch program where you can. Look up and see whether the seafood that you were eating is sustainably harvested or not, which is yeah, pretty cool. I think they're actually working in conjunction with other aquariums. yeah, like a lot of aquariums have banded together to kind of fund that initiative and promote it. Yeah, I think they're sort of just the spearhead of a much bigger yeah. effort. So yes, oysters are delicious, not worth killing people over. yeah, although I'm uh, you know, if it were your only livelihood, you can understand how it could escalate. I still don't think you should be doing that, <laughs> obviously, but you see, you know, how right. all these things happen very quickly. Uh, money. yep, uh, kind of all comes down to it. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. the richest, most powerful place on earth. on an epic scale Juman Bay. Juman Bay. Juman Bay. A vast empire. Threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tumon Bay. Be sharp and die for Tumen Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tumon Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tumen Bay. And now I think you have Listener mail. I knew. I Our listener mail is from Spencer, and it came in an actual envelope on (gasps) physical paper. What? And it's so awesome that uh, you pretty much scampered over to me as soon as you (laughs) opened it, I think. I did. Spencer says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I recently listened to your episode on Boudica and I loved it. I thought I would tell you about my own experience with the rebellious queen. I recently spent two weeks at a camp for the arts in Wellandport, Ontario, where I specialized in stage combat. The first day I was there, I was thrilled to learn that our final performance would be on the Celtic Rebellion against the Romans led by Boudica. We began to train with broadswords, daggers, javelins, spears, and hand-to-hand combat to match what the Celts and the Romans would have used as best as we could. We learned Roman marching, Celt battle cries, and even some Latin. On the final day, I was even covered in Celtic woad and had my hair dyed with white temper paint to look as much like a Celtic warrior as I could. Our performance showed a Celtic ambush, the humiliation of Boudica, the sacking of Londinium, and the final battle in which the Celts were defeated. In the end, however, we decided to show Boudica kill herself even though it is disputed what did happen to her. I was so glad that you had done it on an episode when I got back that I thought I should write you this letter. You are a humble fan, Spencer. That is the greatest story, and I want to go to Boudicca Camp. Yeah, that was Tracy's first reaction when she read it was, I want to go to Boudicca Camp. (laughs) (laughs) Can we have Boudicca Camp for grown-ups? We'll set that up, sure. Yeah. Uh, It would be cool to go to Boudicca Camp. Yeah. I have a friend that's kind of going to Boudicca camp. Not at all, really. He's going to go to Italy to study physical theater for two years. Fun. I know. His going away party is this weekend. That sounds fun. His name is Aaron. I'm wishing you well, Aaron. Yay. So, if you would like to write to us on this or any other subject, you can. We are at com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History Class Stuff and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little bit more about one of the things that came up in today's episode, come to our website and put the word oyster in the search bar. You will find an article called How Do Oysters Make Pearls? You can do all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, mac or write to your tv with your xbox 360 ps3 or nintendo wii console plus apple devices kindle and nook get a free 30-day trial membership go to www.netflix.com and sign up now do you like boats do you like big boats do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats are you always like what goes on below deck The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be served and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.